0: Tonight, if you have a Bible, let's open up to Psalm chapter 25. As today we cover this beautiful psalm that is a, is an acrostic psalm. And that means that every verse begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know, we have 26 letters in our alphabet. They have 22, and each one began with the successive letter. And you might wonder why they did that. And believe it or not, the reason they did that was because they wanted to use it as a memory tool. And so there is even woven within the scriptures themselves uh, an enticement, a a, a blessing, a, a desire, a call to memorize the Bible, And so I do encourage you to do that. Um, Psalm 25, we don't know for sure what the background is, but we uh, are pretty sure the rabbis and the Christian commentators are inclined to believe that it was written while David was on the run from his son Absalom. And so you'll see that kind of woven within the text. And a lot of times, you know, when you're reading these psalms, you might wonder, well, why didn't it just say it explicitly? And I think part of the reason is so that we can relate to it. You know, if you're here tonight, you're going through a spiritual battle, you're going through a struggle, you're going to see a lot of different things you can relate to tonight. Um, that's probably why a lot of times they don't give all the specifics, but I think we can deduce that from the text. And uh, and so you guys remember that story when Absalom was in rebellion uh, to his uh, father David and he wanted to take over the kingdom, and actually there was a period of time when David was forced out of Jerusalem, you read that in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through 19, and so it is helpful to understand that, and we'll touch on it as we go through the psalm uh, tonight, Um, we know for certain it was written uh, towards the second half of David's life, because verse 7 tells us that it was written when he was older, because he talks about the sins of his youth. And so in the Hebrew mind, a youth was anyone 40 or younger. And so this is David writing a little later in life. You know, one of the things you'll notice as we study this psalm together is that it alternates in a very beautiful way between prayer and then meditation. And then another prayer and then meditation. And and then he goes on, and we'll see it. It's kind of cool the way it flows. And verses 1 through 7 is a prayer, meditation, 8 through 10. then 11 is another prayer. And then 12 through 15 is a meditation, and then it closes in a prayer. And so we actually begin with that prayer. Notice what we read in verse 1. It's, It's a Psalm of David. And it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You know, we're going to see it's a serious situation. I wonder if any of you are going through a serious situation. And so David prays a serious prayer. You know, I don't know if you can visualize that, you know, kind of in one sense, lifting up his soul to the Lord. You know, I mean, I I wonder if we do that, you know. uh, This is really what God is calling us to do. And I tell you guys this all the time, don't give up on your prayer life. Not nominal, not casual, not typical prayer, serious prayer, lifting up our souls to the Lord. This is what David is doing. You know, 1 Peter 4, verse 7, and we're even more accountable because it says... But the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. How can we win if we don't pray as, as we should? And so the very first verse, right off the bat, David, as you're going to see, is in a crazy battle. So many lives are hanging in the balance. And, and, he, and he begins by, by saying uh, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, it is but mockery to uplift the hands and the eyes unless we also bring our souls into our devotions. True prayer may be described as the soul rising from earth to have fellowship with God. And so David, you know, he begins. This is real stuff. I lift my soul to you. In verse 2, he continues his prayer and he says, oh, my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. And in his prayer, it's interesting, David expresses his trust in God. You know, and, and I think that in one sense, it tells God something. But you want to know something? It also tells us something. Lord, I, I, the situation doesn't look good. I mean, he's expelled from Jerusalem, whatever the case may be. But but when you're praying, you can even, you know, tell yourself, Lord, I trust you. I I lift my soul to you. Oh, my God, I, I trust in you. You know, David didn't want to be ashamed. Why not? Why didn't David want to be ashamed? Because he understood the very reason for his existence. I talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? Why did God make me? For his glory. And when we are defeated by the devil, when we fall into sin, it brings shame to his name because they know you're a Christian. And that's why, to be honest with you, I I don't want to be defeated. I don't want to be ashamed. It really has nothing to do with the way that people see me. I'm nothing. It has everything to do with the way people see God. And so in this situation, he's saying, Lord, I, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed and, he, and, and so we see he expresses his trust in God. He didn't want to be ashamed because he lived for the glory of God and therefore he had the same enemies as God. And if you're really living for the Lord, you're going to have enemies. As a matter of fact, look down at verse 20 if you would, real quick. In Psalm 25, in verse 20, it says, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. In verse 19, he says, consider my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. And so, you know, we'll talk a little bit about this. You know, David, to me, he, was like, he seemed like a good dude. You know, you would figure, why does he have enemies? But it's because he really was making a difference in the kingdom. And so the enemy... Satan and his demons would stir up people to come against him, right? You know, so he tells God, "Lord, I I trust in you." Let me ask you a question tonight: Do you trust in God? Now, trust it can be defined as a firm belief and confidence in God's ability and reliability. A firm belief and and confidence. In God's ability and reliability. He can do it and he will do it. He's watching over your life. Lord, I I trust in you. You know, I don't know how this is going to work out, to be honest with you, but I know the one who's working it out. I know who he is. I know about his nail-scarred hands. I know about how he loves me more than the stars that he flung in the sky. I know how he... Captures every tear I cry. I know how he knows all about every single hair I have. I know him. I don't know how he's going to work this out. But I know that he will work it out for good. Romans 8, 28. I stand on that truth, Lord. I trust in you that you will work all things together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Now, the word all is a huge word. We're going to see at the very last verse of this psalm, he says that the Lord redeems Israel out of all their troubles. Out of all of them? Every single one of them. And so, you know, we, we read this right here, and all things work together for good. I like what Spurgeon said, and he compared it faith kind of like a, a, a cable. If you can visualize yourself maybe out on the boat, you know, beside the shore, and it's and it's connected to the shore, and you're in connected to the boat, and and so faith is is kind of like that. And and he said by pulling at it, we draw ourselves to the land. You know, faith it unites us to God, and then as we draw near to Him. It's like this anchor of the soul. Without that, there's no hope. And what happens is the enemy comes in. What's the antithesis to faith? Fear. What is the object of the enemy? His ultimate goal is despair, doubt, disobedience, defiance, which then leads to defeat. You know, when I I look at this, and I don't know how you guys feel about enemies, you know, myself in my fallen state, I know myself well enough, I'm old enough now, I've kind of learned a few things about who I am. You know, in my fallen state, I want everyone to like me, right? You know, it's hard to accept the, the concept or the fact that I have enemies, but I know that I do, You know, I realize as I'm preaching at a funeral right there, there are some people scowling at me because they don't like John 14, 6. I understand that. And I know that sometimes even in the church, right, we have enemies. Why? Because of the fact that we preach a word that cuts to the heart, right? And then there's the enemy who starts planting seeds of doubt within the hearts of some people in the church. He tries to stir up division in people's minds as he did with David's son. Absalom, I know that. I'm aware of that. It's okay that not everyone likes me. Even though my flesh wants everyone to, I understand that as a man who is trying his best to serve the Lord, that not everyone will like me. It's okay. I have my enemies. I'm okay with that. And you have to be okay with that too because when you die, you're not going to stand before them. You're going to stand before God and you're going to have to give an account. Everything we do here, Everything I try to do, whether it be you know scrubbing that toilet over there or going and making some copies, copies at Office Depot or meeting with a family who's lost a loved one or preaching at a funeral or teaching a Bible study, everything must be motivated by the king and the kingdom. It's for him. And you never lose sight of what you're doing. It's never for yourself. It always must be for him. And if that's your heart then I promise you, you're going to have enemies. You're going to have people who don't like you. Listen, somewhere along the line, it's going to happen. And so when it happens, you don't have to freak out. You don't have to get down. You just have to look up, like David did, and pray. It's been said, the best of men have their enemies and should pray against them that they may not see their wicked desires accomplished. And that's what David is doing here. He's praying for his enemies because they'd driven him out of the kingdom as king. They had divided it. We read there in verse 19 that they hated him. And so it'll happen in life. It's okay. You know, for us with New Testament light, we know that Jesus said, love them, pray for them, right? And that's exactly what David did. When you read the story of David and Absalom, he loved. His son, right? But he prayed because he loved God more. Notice what we read in verse 3. It says, Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. You know, a person who trusts in God, like, let me ask you a question Do you trust in God? So let me ask you another question. Do you pray? Because if you don't pray the way that you should, then you're not really trusting in God, not to the full extent. See, when you trust in God, you pray. And when you trust in God, you wait on God. You know, when we were young, we acted hastily. We spoke hastily. When we grew up and we started getting a little mature, we learned by the power of the Holy Spirit, I will tame my tongue and I won't make decisions in the flesh. I will wait on the Lord and I will seek his face. You know, and that's what David did during this whole rebellion of Absalom. If you guys read the story, it's amazing how, hey, he was so cool, he was calm. He didn't react in the flesh. He didn't get hasty in you know, trying to get his hand to try to help God out. And, and it's really a lesson for us all to be patient, to wait on the Lord, to don't step out in the flesh. And, and, and if you're a believer, I pray that you believe that in your particular situation, your life and your loved one, they're in his hands and he's working it out for good. And, you know, we have a hard time waiting, we really do. You know, but in due time, in the season of our Savior, God will show up and show the wisdom of his plan and why it took so long and what he did all along the way. I understand it's hard. I know that. But it gives us joy for the journey. It really does. You know, so much so that that Spurgeon said, patience is the child of faith. He said this, we cheerfully wait when we are certain that we shall not wait in vain. See, I can wait with joy because I know the ability and the reliability of my Redeemer. You will not, when you wait on the Lord, you will not wait in vain. And how many people have rushed into decisions that now they regret because they did not hear the voice of God leading them. You know, David continues his prayer here in verse 4, which, if you notice, is not only a prayer for protection, but it's also a prayer for direction. And we see that really throughout this psalm. Notice uh, verse 4. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. You know, and and to put it mildly, you know, to have a son who's in rebellion to you, that's a pretty tough situation, huh? You know, if you're a parent here tonight, how many of you are parents, you know that one of the toughest things in the world is parenting. I mean, it's harder than algebra. I mean, it's, it's difficult to figure out. You know, sometimes all our children are different, and so you need to deal, deal, deal with them in different ways while simultaneously not showing partiality to them. And, you know, as a parent, one of the toughest things for me is not to be too hard, but at the same time, not not to be too soft. And And, man, some of the predicaments they get themselves into almost reminds me of me when I was younger, you know. So so that's what David's going on. That's what's going on. So David prays, Lord, teach me your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. On you I wait all day long. So it's very important that as parents and as Christians... We don't want our ways. We don't want our paths. We want his ways. We want his paths. And it's interesting the way that the Lord gives us direction, you know? Lord, uh, show me your your way. Now, as a Christian, you know, that's where you kind of get confirmation, I guess you could say, you know, where God makes it evident, where you can see it. You know, you're not, you know, randomly following. I know I've done that and, you know, following someone in the fog. It was a real tough thing to do, you know. But, you know, to show me, Lord, show me, make it clear. Show me your ways. We do have a relationship with God. And if you don't, something's wrong. He speaks to us. He shows us his ways and, and he'll make it evident. Lord, teach me. Teach me. And, and you know, your antennas are, are always up. Whether you're going through the hard times, of course, you know, your antennas are probably a little bit more sensitive. But but it should always be that way. We're Christians. We always want to learn his word. We always want him to teach us his word, right? My heart, Lord, is open to the truth of your word. Lead me. Teach me. And this is more than the instruction of the lips of the Lord now. This Hebrew word it's not just him pointing his hand saying, okay, Manny, go that way. This is now him taking me by the hand. And sometimes the best form of teaching and leading is going through it together. And that's what God does with us. This is what we need. You know, the Psalms are so beautiful because even in the Old Testament, there's no, no doubt about it. David, a man after God's own heart, had an intimate and personal, and deep relationship with God. Remember we talked about that a couple of Sundays ago, that we're created in the image of God, and therefore we're we're social, rational, moral, and spiritual beings. And being spiritual means that, number one, I'm eternal. Number two, I can have a relationship with God. And that's what David had. And what we see right here is God guards And God guides, in other words, he protects and directs all of our lives, especially when we pray and stop and ask for direction. Just curious, this is just a a little side note, Uh, uh, I'm curious. How many of you here know the streets of downtown Los Angeles? You guys know your way around there? Man, every time I go down that way, I get lost. I don't know how to do it. And I'm trying to do my, you know, map quest thing. And, you know, I mean, but for me, it's kind of a, a, you know, that's just a physical uh, map or road map. But for me, that's kind of like knowing the Bible. I want to know his paths. I want to know where that street leads. I want to know this word. And that's what David is talking about here. And notice in verse six, he says, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. You know, again, Spurgeon said, we are usually tempted in seasons of affliction to fear that our God has forgotten us. Right? And so, you know, understand he hasn't forgotten you. He knows exactly what you're going through. So, David, you remember, O Lord, Remember your your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. The way that God has dealt with us so tenderly, so lovingly from of old, meaning all his life. It's always been that way, how God has been so gracious to him. In verse 7, he says, but do not remember. In verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. When he crossed the line, according to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. You know, and, and it's interesting how now he's in this, this place and it is, a, it is like a huge crossroads in his life. And, and life has a way of kind of like bringing all the things that you've done in your life in front of you and there you are before God. And David is kind of saying, Lord, don't remember the, the sins of my youth. Uh, I wonder how many of us would be in big trouble Here tonight, if God remembered the sins of our youth. Some of you guys, huh? In all reality, we should be dead and in hell forever. That's what we deserve. But as he's there, he's saying, Lord, don't remember the sins of of our youth. You know, I know for a lot of us here, you know, we then later on in life became Christians in Second Corinthians 5.17. It says that we're new creatures in Christ. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new. Understand that that's all washed away by the blood of Jesus. And so we know that, you know, he's not necessarily going to bring up a new account. There, you know in god's uh, grace there's almost like a they call it like a statue of limitation that was before christ it doesn't mean we won't reap the consequences of our sins we might god is gracious god has a way of working all these things out you know i, I personally know of a worship leader who died of aids and he wrote these beautiful songs but before he was a christian he was promiscuous And then as a Christian, later on in life, he died. So it doesn't mean you're not going to suffer any of the ramifications or consequences of your sin before you were a Christian, but God's not going to now hold it against you and not hear your prayers because of their sins of the youth. By the grace of God, we're forgiven of those sins. But, But here's the thing, just because God won't bring a new case against you Here's what I learn when I read this psalm. And I pray that you don't lose sight of this, that you don't miss this. Listen, it is so important that you are in tune with the grace that God has shown to you. And that's what David is, is really doing right here. You know, don't forget the way you were. You know, don't lose sight of that. Even Peter says that one who's not climbing that ladder of virtues is the one who's forgotten the life that he used to live before he was a Christian. What God has redeemed us from, right? Because when we're in tune with our own sins of the past, not that it would condemn you, but it keeps you humble. Otherwise, you become a self-righteous Pharisee. And your, your prayers are going to be hindered. You see, often when I pray, I'll be honest with you, I'm not necessarily haunted by my sins, but I'm cognizant of them. I'm well aware of the wretched man that I am, the horrible things that I did in the past, and even the way that I fall short in the present. You know, I, when I pray, I'm aware of that. You know, and, and even now, I mean, who here as a husband can say you're a perfect husband or wife? or dad, or mom, or friend, myself, I think of the way that I fall so short in all those roles and responsibilities, and as a son, and as a servant. And so here's David, and when you study the whole story of Absalom, I mean, Absalom was bad. But it's not like David was there praying and saying, Lord, get him, he's such a bad guy. He was just saying, Lord, I know I have my flaws too. Don't remember my sins, the sins of my youth. And he's going to talk about it even more so in the middle of this whole thing. I mean, here's David's son dealing treacherously with his own father. David didn't um, deserve it per se, but it wasn't like he was praying, you know, I'm full on blameless. Sometimes I, I hear people talk like that. They're so bad. They're so bad. What? You're so good. God, get him. God, get him. You better watch out or he's going to get you. I mean, we have to come, and we're going to see this whole thing as, as and even though Joyce Myers wouldn't like it, we're sinners. God hears the prayers of sinners. She says, oh, we're not sinners. Yes, we are sinners. We're forgiven, but we're we're sinners. You know, I, I can't approach God in my own self-righteousness. I relate so well with what Jesus spoke in John 18, Luke 18 9 through 14, remember the parable? He he told the some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed, thus, notice, with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector said, standing far off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, when David was on his way after being you know, forced out of Jerusalem, Shimei came and started cursing him. You know, and David's general said, man, let me cut that guy's head off. And David said, no, leave him alone. You know, maybe it's the Lord. I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm not perfect. You know, verse 8 is a meditation, good and humble, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners, see, in the way. The the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. Notice David is saying my iniquity. Why? Because it's great. For it is great. You know, if we want God to guide us, how many of you here want that? If we want God to to guard us, if we want protection from the devil and the enemies, if we want direction, then we're going to have to be in tune with our own flaws and failures. I dare not approach his holy throne with the claim that I am, you know, just and, and righteous on my own, not apart from the cross of Christ. You know, I want I want God to teach me, and and that's something that, you know, it's amazing how we're just going through one Psalm each week, but how deep each one is. Verse five, it talks about him being taught. In verse nine and verse twelve, and it's just all about God teaching him. You know, and, and I was thinking about Carlos, and he gave me two acronyms. You guys know Carlos, right? He, I remember talking to him on the phone, and he said, "Yeah, I want to be raw, Pastor Manny." I said, raw? What do you mean raw? He said, yeah, ready and willing. Okay, and then he said, I want to be fat. And I'm like, don't say that. He said, well, it stands for faithful and teachable. Okay, you know what? It's true. I, I want to be teachable. I've been studying this Bible for a long time. The more I see it as I look into the mirror, the more I see the areas of my life that God wants to work on, And I tell you what, I've never been hungrier for God or his word than I am now. And I want it to grow. You know, teach me your paths, Lord. Teach me your word. And you're coming to a midweek study and you come to a Sunday study and you listen to Bible studies and you open up the Bible in the morning by faith and he teaches you. And you're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit because he's always speaking and teaching. You know, we see this over and over again in verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. And there are so many things that we can camp out on right here. The fear of the Lord. Do you have a healthy fear of the Lord? You know, a a God who is awesome and you reverent him, you know, because at the end of the day, if he wants to, he can give us the rancaso anytime. I fear him. I tremble at his word. You know, he talks about the the fear right here. He also talks about the family. And we're going to see this later on. David, this is a prayer of David. He's talking about me and my God and all the things that is so personal. But it's not just personal. It's never just Personal it affects your family it affects the community it affects our it can affect our country no one sins unto himself and so we're doing this not just for us but for others and right here he talks about how when you know this affects the descendants they're going to you know be blessed and so we see the fear of the family and then also we see here the the friends in verse 14 I, i've always loved this passage the secret of the lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant you know the the secret of the lord you know what's that you know and i think it it might be the word but in, in one sense it's even what i like to refer to as divine details in life insight about situations insight discernment about people Things that you need to know that you otherwise wouldn't know unless the Holy Spirit had shown you. Why does God now tell you secrets? Because you're his friends now. And he said that in John chapter 15, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And and so it doesn't mean that we're no longer servants. It just means that we are also now friends. And he tells us secrets because we fear him. A lot of us need a word from the Lord. But you you can't hear a word from the Lord because the the voice of the world is too loud. You need to listen to the secrets that God wants to tell you. If you draw near, if you pray as he would lead you, whatever might be fasting, God will speak to you. You know, what we find right here is something that I, I remember reading in the Old Testament in the 2 Kings. The whole story of Elisha is a real amazing story Elisha was a man who knew the secrets of the Lord to such a point that the, the Syrian king said, I don't get it, okay, who's the spy here? Who's giving out all the information to Israel? Because every time we want to do something, they're there to kind of intercept us. And, and they, they told the king, they said, you know, it's not that, it's, it's Elisha tells them what you're saying in your bedroom. Elisha. Had that type of insight when you 're walking with the Lord he shows you things, and so what happened in, in, in chapter four of second Kings, there was an incident with a with a sister in the Lord, and she was having a, a struggle and elisha this was a, a anomaly he didn't he was he was surprised that he didn 't know what was already going on that 's how Much He knew the voice of God, how much he had insight and discernment into situations that the one time when he didn't have the secret, it surprised him. This is a powerful verse. If you want to know that insight, that secret, I encourage you to fear him, love him. I think that a lot of times people aren't filled with the Holy Spirit because they're so full of the world. You guys, man, we have to really seek God. We need that inside information because we're in a very real battle. Look at verse fifteen: My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He shall pluck my feet out of the net. You know, and and you know, this is a, another one of my favorite verses. You know, I, I love this verse. My eyes are, are are ever towards the Lord. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter twelve, verse two, where the Bible says, "Looking unto Jesus," which literally means fixing our eyes on Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't. My eyes are ever toward the Lord because He's the one that's going to, you know, rescue me. You know, I mean. Otherwise, we end up like Peter, who was walking on water. He took his eyes off the Lord. The Bible says that he saw that the wind was boisterous. He didn't see the wind. He saw the waves. He saw the storm. And then what happened? He started sinking. And so he would have, he would have sunk to the bottom if he didn't say, help, Lord. And the Lord lifted him up, and he said, man, what happened? Not in that exact words, but... <laughs> He just said, you know, um, when they got into the boat, he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? What does it mean to keep your eyes on the Lord? What does it mean, my eyes are ever toward the Lord? It means that you're not focusing on yourself or your problems. Your eyes, your mind is not on the enemy. You know, I understand we have situations that we need to be aware of, but just... Glance at those things real quick. Gaze upon God. Look at them even in the light of the Lord's presence. It's important that we live life like that. You know, real quick, I don't know if we have time to go through this, but you know, I was thinking about how now there's a, a big problem of uh, texting while driving. I mean, it's crazy. I, I I would like to ask here today, who does their phone while they're driving Not just joking i <laughs> want you know because you guys are all violating romans chapter 13 that says we're supposed to obey the laws of the land it says we're not supposed to be on our phone right and so it's crazy though because people will not only be on their phone talking they're texting i've seen people go across the lane and they're texting while they're driving You know, and that's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here, how we get our eyes off the Lord when our eyes should be on Him. Our eyes need to be on the road, right? I mean, I I was reading some statistics on this. I guess texting while driving is a growing trend. It's a national epidemic, and it's quickly becoming one of the country's top killers. Drivers assume they can handle texting while driving and remain safe But uh, the numbers don't lie. Just to let you know, uh, 1.6 million accidents are caused each year by texting while driving. That was back in 2011. Imagine how much they are now. 330,000 injuries per year, 11 teen deaths every day. One day that might be you. Nearly 25% of all accidents are caused because of texting while driving. You're six times more likely to cause an accident while driving, uh, while texting, than you are intoxicated. That's weird, huh? They call it intoxicated. That's what they call it now. You know, it's the same as driving after four beers, and it's the number one distraction among teen drivers. It makes you 23 times more likely to crash, and they say that it's happening a- anytime you drive by over 800,000 drivers. It shows your brake reaction by 18%. We have some more statistics right here. It makes us 23 times more likely to crash, and it's a big temptation for teens. Apparently, 13% of all teen drivers, ages 18 through 20, are involved in car wrecks and admitted the fact that they were texting while driving. And then we got a couple more real quick pictures just in case who knows, you know, maybe we might save someone's life physically if you guys uh would get convicted by the holy spirit let him convict you man adults do it too cuz you know sometimes we're picking on the kids but some of you here are adults and your your children are watching you text right 48% of young drivers have seen their parents drive while talking on the phone 15% uh while they're texting and then we got one more screen and uh it's it's not a good example you guys Uh, with the longest uh, eyes off the road time of all times distracted by driving activities. And so text messaging makes a crash, again, 23 times more likely. There's a a statistic here that if you take your, there's another screen, if you take your eyes off the road for five seconds, you're going 55 miles an hour, you just traveled the length of a football field without looking at the road. And, and, And I just use that, As number one, to be honest with you, I was thinking, Lord, let our church not do that. But number two, it's an illustration of how important it is that you keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So important. You know, you're like, well, how do I do that? Be in the word because he'll teach you. Right, I, I think that that scripture that says when your eyes are bad, your whole body's bad. To me, that means you're looking at things that you shouldn't be looking at, when you should be looking at the Word. Um, number two, uh, be open because he's going to teach you things and show you things. And number three, be on your knees. This is how we keep our eyes on the Lord. You know, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Second Chronicles twenty and verse twelve. It says, Oh our God, will you not judge them? And again, they're surrounded by the enemy, right? You know, and you're in a situation where it's just you're so impotent, right? You don't know what to do. That's what he says, for Lord, he says this we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I tell you what. I can relate to that. Lord, I don't know what to do. But He says, Our eyes are on you. You see, that's where we have to be. In you know, all this, it caused deep pain upon David. In verse 16, He says, Turn yourself to me, have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain. For, forgive all my sins i mean the the point here is david is going through so much heartache you know being a christian it means you're free but you're not free from problems and you're not free from pain and you'll experience it even more if you're making a difference verse 19 consider my enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred you know sometimes you can see your enemy You know, it's someone, it's obvious, you know, whatever, they're talking about you, you know, but other times you can't. And sometimes it's the enemy, you know, you working in subtle ways and you almost can't put your finger on it, but you're being oppressed by the enemy. You know, I was thinking about Paul the Apostle when he wrote in Philippians 3.18, for many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So many enemies that Paul had, that we have. Nehemiah, remember, when he was trying to do the work of the Lord, the enemies came against him and all they wanted him to do was stop it. Stop serving the Lord. That's all they wanted. But Nehemiah kept going. David here, he prays in verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. For I put my trust in you Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. Who who can redeem Israel? A nation? A whole nation? Who can redeem a whole nation out of all their troubles? And, of course, we know only the Lord can, huh? See, David here is interesting. Uh, Verse 20, keep my soul, deliver me. Let me not be ashamed. I put my trust in you. Uh, Let integrity and brightness preserve me. I wait for you. It's a very personal thing, very personal thing. But it wasn't just a personal thing. It was a national thing. And, Lord, as this whole battle with Absalom is going on and this whole thing is taking place, God... It affects the whole nation. And that's why the Lord has been really uh, ministering to me this, and and I'll close with this. Maybe we can have the musicians come forward. How important your witness is. Isn't it interesting how Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me and and basically what I'm learning is that it's personal but it affects other people and and it can do it for for bad but it can also do something for good And and I pray you would know that you guys that what's going on is a great work of God just like Nehemiah said And our Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed not only Israel. And the reason why Israel is so important is because through them would come the scriptures and the Savior. But but he has redeemed the whole wide world. And now, in order to be saved, all we have to do is repent of our sins and unbelief and receive Christ as Lord and Savior because he's our redeemer, right? The, the Bible talks about that and in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ and as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen, we belong to God. We were kidnapped by the enemy. We allowed him to do that. And then he redeemed. He redeemed us back to himself. He didn't pay any gold or silver or stars or money. He bought us back with his own blood. And he redeemed us from all our troubles. And that means that when you go through those troubles, and I know it's cliche, and I know I tell you guys this all the time, but man, it is true. The troubles become triumphs. The stumbling stones, they become stepping stones. I know it's hard for us to see, but it's true. And when I read that right there, what it does is it makes me now want to live my life for him. Let me close with with one last story. It's a true story about a gentleman visiting a slave market who was deeply touched by the mental agony of a slave girl Apparently she had been reared in a a home that he knew and he feared that she would fall into the hands of the wrong master. And so the gentleman inquired her price. It was a high price, but he paid it to the slave trader and then he placed the bill of sale in her own hands and he told her that she was free. She was free to go home. She was free to live her own life. He had bought her out of the slave market. And so the slave girl, at first it it took time to to hit her, what had really taken place. But eventually it did. I, I was a slave. I've been redeemed. And so what the slave girl did is she ran after her Redeemer. And she cried, he has redeemed me. He has redeemed me. And then she turned to him and said, will you let me be yours? We are his. We've been redeemed out of all our troubles. Yeah, we pray. There's battle going on. We're learning how to fight. But the war has been won by Jesus. I pray you guys would never forget.